Good morning and welcome to Legal Defense with Kirk and John. I'm Kirk O'Bear. I'm John Birdsall. How are you doing, Kirk? I am doing very well, sir. How are you? I like the sir part. Well, yeah, every once in a while I try and, you know, know, make you feel a little better. Should have an honorific, I guess, you know. (laughs) (laughs) You know, uh, it's like when someone says, Attorney Kirk O'Bear Esquire, you know, gilding a lily. You know, they do that in New York state. Like that's like a, I don't, I don't know if it's like, like part of their admissions thing, but everybody uses Esquire. Mm-hmm. And it's like, Oh my God. All right. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. So I want to talk a little bit about Ukraine because it's on everyone's mind. I've been happening in there. Probably unhealth, uh, unhealthfully obsessed with, uh, you know, watching the news and everything. But, um, you know, I subscribe to this Ukrainian news channel and I don't know what they're talking about because I don't understand Ukrainian, but they, they have a lot more kind of on the scene cell phone, like, you know, live stuff going on. And it's really fascinating to see like the extent of all the, you know, the terrible damage that's going on. But I did want to talk about a legal issue and that is, there's evidence that uh, the Russian soldiers are using what are called thermobaric devices. And in uh, military parlance, it's sometimes called the poor man's nuclear weapon. And have you heard about this? No. Yeah. Well, what it is, is that it's a two stage. um, It's a conventional explosive, but what it does is it first, uh, there's a small explosion that sends a burst of a highly flammable um, liquid-like gel, kind of like napalm, uh, over a, a large area. Then there's a secondary explosion that ignites all of that. And the process of the very quick ignition causes uh, basically a vacuum to occur. And it does make kind of a mushroom cloud because of the fact that it has a very, very powerful shockwave and and um so even if within the incineration area which can be as as wide as a thousand feet um anything any person that survives that would then be killed by the shockwave if they're not dead already mm-hmm. so it's a it's considered a you know an indiscriminate weapon and the u.s has used it a couple of times i don't know if you recall back uh during um part of what was going on in Afghanistan, they used a weapon that they called Moab, uh, the mother of all bombs. And it that's it's a thermobaric type device, but it's also incredibly uh, powerful. I think, I can't remember how much it weighs, but it's like the largest conventional weapon that exists in the I world. Do recall, I do recall this um, being discussed. I don't remember the year, but of course we were there for 20, so it's kind of... Yeah, it was one of those, one of those years. One of those years. But that was, in particular, designed to uh, target uh, caves that where there had been, yes, personnel, but also munitions and equipment and stuff like that stored underground. But um, very strong argument that it's specifically prohibited by the Geneva Conventions um, because indiscriminate devices that used against civilian populations are war crimes. And... Um, so th- there's a pretty strong belief that based on some of the damage and some of the footage that's out there that some of these are thermobaric weapons, which are. So let's, let's just define indiscriminate, though. 
something, well, okay. Based on the law of armed conflict, the way that, which is no, there is no law. It's just basically a body of principles that in some ways are embodied in the Geneva Conventions. And Geneva Conventions actually are supposed to be applicable to all combatants worldwide, regardless of whether they're signatory or not. And, you know, the idea behind having at least some terms as to what is fair and what isn't fair in combat has to do with uh, making sure that anyone fighting on behalf of a officially fighting on behalf of a nation state uh, wears the uniform identifying themselves as a combatant, meaning that they're a target, a legitimate target for combat. The That's the downside. The upside is that if you're wearing the uniform of the service that you are participating in, you're entitled to fair treatment, to be free from torture. If you surrender, you have to be they have to be willing to take you prisoner rather than um, killing you. And you can't be fo- forced to perform, uh, you know, labor until you die. You have to be fed all these things. Um, so it's supposed to be a mutually um, understood process whereby if you follow the rules, the other side will follow the rules. If you don't follow the rules, the other side doesn't have to follow the rules. So now since obviously the Geneva conventions go way back, but, since that time, of course, we've, uh, I'm sure you're familiar with the International Criminal Court that um, convenes in The Hague. Right. Of and there, there is a regular flow of prosecutions in that tribunal, mostly relating to uh, genocide cases and mostly relating to, you know, um, skirmishes that have happened in the continent of Africa or in Myanmar or places like that where... Um, you know, there's a dictatorship that is killing their own civilian population or executing uh, citizens of a, of a annexed territory or something like that. But um, you know that that does have. There's always an argument over whether the ICC has jurisdiction over anybody, because it, you know what is the actual legal basis to prosecute somebody in the international criminal court, um, which is an interesting question because it's a bit it's a and bit what's their authority to- <laughs> but it's happened. It, it it's a little it's a little hard to um decipher where it really comes from because of the fact that um it, it stems from the certain treaties and proclamations that have made, been made by countries as a condition of their being recognized by other countries as legitimate governments that they agreed to be subject to criminal jurisdiction um and shall not commit uh, war crimes or atrocities and things like that. So they agree by um, being signatories, not necessarily. Um, so that's kind of where the gray area is. And it's, it's been litigated a lot. You know, if somebody says, you don't, you can't do this to me, who are you? You know, you're just these people in the Hague, you know, what's up with that. But um, that's why oftentimes it's a matter of whether it, they have the person in custody and they, they do trials in absentia too, you know, Oh, we find so-and-so guilty of a war crime. He, he's not here, but yeah. <laughs> you know? Right. Right. And you know, know how much power that, that really has, but well, anyway, that, that kind of violates like the very basic tenets of say, for example, our criminal legal system, but right. Notice and opportunity to, be present yeah. and conversation, conversation all, all those little things, you know, those little minor, little, little tiny details. Yeah. 
But, you know, this is how I see things unfolding. And this is just, um, <laughs> and, and I, part of the problem is I don't think that the citizens of Russia are getting any form of an accurate portrayal of things going on. I mean, I suppose one could question whether the rest of the world is either, but uh, assuming that the freedoms of speech and press that exist in most of the places uh, guard against us all being duped by our own propaganda, which again, that's assuming a lot, but I'm just a skeptic. Uh, (laughs) But, uh, you know, knowing the iron grip with which uh, Russia in particular has evolved into controlling their media. There's a great deal of propaganda. Of course, when it was the Soviet Union, they were masters of propaganda, but, um, you know, basically just justifying this as a peacekeeping mission to protect the pro Russian um, liberators of the, you know, Eastern portion of the country and creating a new recognized state which is all very silly and dumb and dangerous well, it's, it's, kind of, it's kind of laughable really you know um and while they have been historically pretty masterful at propaganda they seem to be falling short now or at least this appears to be like a and maybe there's some you know secret card that hasn't been played yet that i don't know about but it really seems like this was a horrible miscalculation. Oh, uh, yes, clearly. So, but what what should happen in you know, if you can really kind of forecast what's hap- what's going to happen hopefully, it needs to be a combination of continued resistance in Ukraine if if there's not going to be any NATO boots on the ground, which I perfectly understand would probably trigger a nuclear conflict. But assuming that isn't going to happen, all of the sanctions, the economic support, the equipment support, the financial support, etc., all those things combined with the citizens of Russia waking up to realize that, you know, their so-called leader is tanking their entire country. I think only at that point will, you know, there needs to be an internal revolt or regime change. When we come back to the break, I'll, I'm going to... A comment on um, the uh, actual sanctions that are in place. So, all right, let's do that. We'll be back right after these messages. We're back. More legal defense. More John. And actually, it's been um, kind of a global review the last couple of weeks. It has yeah. for obvious reasons. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I it's disheartening just to see how. You know, I, I know there's this impulse. I have the same impulse. I want to do something. I want to, you know, give me a gun or something. And it's, I just feel that way. It's natural. But, um, you know, there's good reasons why our hands are tied. You know, there is a tactical nuclear capability that I think there's a pretty high chance that it could be deployed. I'm not talking about like ICBMs or, you know, hydrogen yeah. bombs, but but nuclear tactical weapons that have a limited. Well, that, would, that would, I mean, this was already a shocking event in world history. Um, and that, that would be, I mean, the, the, the world is already united against him mm-hmm. mostly. And um, that would be just, I think 
the the absolute downfall of of Russia. Yes, if if they attempted anything like that. So two 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 things. First of all, a local thing. Um, I was at my office in downtown Milwaukee, and I went out uh, on the porch of my building, and I heard, did not see, but I heard what was obviously a fighter jet flying overhead. And the only time I ever hear that is when, like, the, you know, the Blue Angels, <laughs> the Thunderbirds are in town, right? Like the 4th of July or something. Right. <laughs> right. And so... And then later that day, one of our associates saw a cargo plane, which is not something also that you see rarely. And Mitchell International Airport has uh, an Air Force uh, contingency that has a refueling wing, as I understand it. And you're an Air Force guy, so I think you'd know this. And so I'm thinking that those guys are being deployed to – somewhere in Europe, although we haven't heard anything. And usually you hear about National Guard deployments. Yeah, uh, or, or reserve deployments. Yeah, I think there's a reserve unit there, too. The, yeah. Um, the uh, yeah, normally they have no problem announcing that that's happening because, you know, uh, how many planes do they have there? Like 30 or something? You're, someone's going to notice, you know, <laughs> if they're going that way. You but know? I haven't seen a single report. I haven't heard anything. I you know, I just thought it was interesting and it was out of the ordinary because very rarely do planes, commercial or otherwise, fly over the Milwaukee area. They fly right. they, they fly into Mitchell over Lake Michigan and they come in from the south and um, or, you know, uh, if they're coming in from the east, then they they still come from from the south. So. It was just unusual and just coincidental and it's kind of weird. And so I thought, you know, I, I don't know, maybe, it was my, maybe my mind was racing unnecessarily. <laughs> that could be, but, I don't know. And but, if you had seen the jet, I mean, I'd be interested to know if it had like Russian markings on it. That would be, <laughs> be kind of like, wow, that's deep space, you know, penetration there. Um, but, but getting back to the sanctions thing. So, the sanctions that are being imposed have obviously had an effect. The ruble's down 30%. They've doubled their interest rates. Um, it's, it's, it's dire economic times for an economy that is um, literally um, like a fraction of the United States, you know, um, and, and of their GDP is what I'm referring to. Right. The size of their economy. And, uh, and so, it, it's kind of like a almost pathetic, you know, attempt to exert superpower status when you're clearly not. However, these sanctions that have been imposed do not include two very significant areas. One, energy. Two, agriculture. And so one of the main um, economic supports for Russia is their petroleum and natural gas exports to Western Europe. Mm-hmm. And um, and frankly, that was like a very questionable um, engagement by Europe to be dependent upon them. Right. And, um, and, and then agriculture, 
they're, you know, the, the fact that that was just sort of excluded from these sanctions, I don't know, maybe they're just like holding that back. But the point is, is that those two things, if they had been part of the sanctions, that would have had severe repercussions on the U.S. and and Europe. Right. Uh, and and so if you watched the State of the Union address, mm-hmm. you know, the, that was, of course, not addressed. But but Biden did talk about, you know, trying to mitigate the effects on us while we're still punishing them. And I think that's sort of the idea is sure. to exclude those, because if we included those, it would have severe economic repercussions on us. And I don't know about you, but I well, think, goal, I think we have to, so, go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I think we have to we have to learn. If we want to inflict some pain, we have to learn to absorb some pain, too. You know, True. I, I agree just, with that. Just because we got to pay some more at the pump. For a while, um, we have to stand up for something. You were defense lawyers. At some time, you have to stand up for something and accept some risk and some pain. And if that means we got to, like, have some damn, you know, pain from some economic sanctions that blow back on us, then so be it for this obvious Hitler-ish, you know, transgression. So. Right. Now, this is actually a very complicated area. There are people that when they're putting together sanctions, there's usually a whole team of economists, lawyers, uh, you know, people that, that know, that understand, you know, the inner workings of all these things, but also there, you have to think about policy and two things about this, what, what the goal of, of sanctions should be obviously punishment, but it has to be done in a very careful way because you're trying to achieve two things at once. The first is to affect the enemies. let's assume Russia is the enemy here to affect the enemy's ability to conduct war. That's kind of the primary thing. Right. The second thing is to influence um, public opinion in Russia of, of the citizens of, of their, you know, um, of whether this is a good idea, you know, and if they could oust Putin, then problem solved. But that's a very careful calculus because, you uh, you know, especially when it comes to agricultural sanctions, if we're talking about starving people, um, you know, it can backfire because we, obviously people want to be unhappy. They want to we want them to blame Putin for what's going on. But when they start starving to death, that's a different story. Um, and I think that it, it may go to it may be inhumane. I agree with you 100 percent in terms of us. Uh, sh- we should be willing to feel some pain. And it includes, you know probably taking the extraordinary, unusual measure of tapping into our emergency oil reserves, which hardly ever happens, but good, certainly. But I think that, yeah, it's a combination of we don't want to hurt our own economy too much while we're still trying to cripple theirs. But, you know, you got to remember, you're, I think you're right. You're on to something when you said maybe we're holding those things back because, the best way for sanctions to work is for them, like Biden said, you know, these things take time, but the sanctions that are already in place are already starting to have a very heavy impact. Very clearly. And no they, were saying, they were saying this, uh, I think it was Thursday morning that, uh, you know, and the, the, I don't know how this is possible, but they said the ruble was trading at zero. I don't know how that happens. Like, hey, how much will you give me for these rubles? I'll give you zero. 
like does that really happen? Okay, I'll take it. Well, honestly, you know, in terms of fomenting popular uprising in Russia, I mean, boy, if if you're an average Russian citizen and suddenly the meager life savings that you had is suddenly worthless. Man, you know, you got to be like kind of pissed off at these oligarchs and and Putin. And and, I mean, I don't know. It's just like, like, I don't know if that's going to actually, you know, uh, amount to an uprising. But boy, I think that's part of that's part of the hope. You know, part of the hope is that that really is um, cutting off the head of the snake there. If you if you're capable of doing that. And and look, you know, I think it's become even more apparent in recent, you know, in the past seven, 10 days that, you know, if you want to know how to predict what Putin's going to do, just assume the worst and it's probably going to happen. And everything he says is just an excuse or a pretext or a flat out lie. And okay. So now we know who we're dealing with. Don't trust anything he has to say, you know, (laughs) all these, all these uh, justifications, which are, Oh yeah. Well now we're hitting a, you know, civilian, neighborhoods and hospitals and uh, grocery stores because uh, they might be hiding munitions inside of them. Yeah, right. That's the oldest excuse in the world. And (laughs) anyway, we do have to take a break, John. So we'll be right right. back in just a minute. Welcome back, Uh, John. You've got, you want to change the subject a little bit here. So I will, you know, it's it's not that this is not a perfectly unbelievable conversation uh and worth having obviously it is uh but there are it, there is other news legally mm-hmm. um, one of them is drum roll please um january 6th yes so <laughs> the, the committee the continuing developments yes <laughs> the congressional committee that is investigating the insurrection on january 6th um, uh, has has filed in response to a denial by John Eastman, who was President Trump's lawyer, um, who has um, asserted a um, executive privilege and attorney-client privilege uh, against producing emails between him and various others, including the president, well, then president, uh, about, you know, their efforts to derail the 2020 election. Uh, well, they said there's no evidence that, that this, that, you know, that there's, there's certain things that defeat an attorney client privilege. Okay. So let's just, well, actually let's back up. An attorney client privilege is, 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 is a sacred thing. And as you and I both know, so what you say to an attorney any attorney um, in the context of consulting with them cannot be revealed. It's a statutory privilege in every state. It's a federal thing. It's, it's like it's embodied in the rules of ethics as well. Yeah, absolutely. And, and there's a reason for that is because you want to be honest with your lawyer. You want to be you and you want to know that whatever you tell them, Nobody, nobody can make that lawyer say what you told them. All right. Right. So that is a really, really, really important concept. However, there's an exception. 
It's called the crime fraud exception. So if you're telling your client or your client is telling the lawyer something that is criminal or fraudulent, that is not covered. Right. All right. And you and give me an example of when you say something criminal. You don't mean something that's happened in the past where you know the client is saying, Yeah, no, it's true, it's true, no, I murdered the guy. That's no, that is something that something that they intend to do in the future. Correct. Or they are currently doing. Right. Right. So uh, Eastman was hired by Trump in in the Trump campaign to you know, concoct a legal basis for having Mike Pence deny the electoral college count on January 6th, right? That's what the whole insurrection was about. And um, and he has asserted this attorney-client privilege in denying the committee that's investigating uh, uh, any of the emails that have been, you know, there's, thousands and thousands of them uh, between all the various parties um, that that he was copied on or he generated or were sent to him. And, and so, uh, so he filed suit asserting this privilege and the committee replied today, well, this week saying that, um, okay, you said there's no evidence and um, and they said, okay, you want no evidence? All right, there is evidence, and here it is. And so they 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 filed, and, and I think it might be worth reading this little bit of an article about this, uh, just a portion of it, um, and and just uh, give give you an idea about what how deeply this has gone. So this is this is just a portion of an article from the New York Times. Quote, the committee added information from its more than 550 interviews from state officials, Justice Department officials, and top aides to Mr. Trump and others. It said, for example, that Jason Miller Jr., Mr. Trump's senior campaign advisors, had told the committee in a deposition that Mr. Trump had been told soon after Election Day by a campaign data expert in pretty blunt terms that he was going to lose, suggesting that Mr. Trump was well aware that his Months of assertions about a total election were false. Mr. Trump, subs- Mr. Trump subsequently said he disagreed with the data experts' analysis. Mr. Miller said because he thought he could win in court. The evidence gathered by the committee provides, at a minimum, a good faith basis for concluding that Mr. Trump has violated the obstruction count. The filing written by Douglas Letter, the general counsel of the House, said, adding, the select committee also has a good faith basis for concluding the president and members of his campaign engaged in a criminal conspiracy to defraud the United States. The filing said that a review of the materials may reveal that the president and members of his cabinet, uh, excuse me, of his campaign engaged in common law fraud in connection with the efforts to overturn the 2020 election results. So the the key there is review of the materials and the materials they're referring to is the um, the emails that this lawyer has and that the committee is demanding. And though that's some pretty bold stuff to be saying. <laughs> that's yeah, water, no, I know. Watergate level stuff. It is. And and I, 
I, I don't think it's surprising that this is a, you know, a great concern, but I do have another take on this that, you know, just to be devil's advocate here for a second. Okay. And I think there's a risk here of slipping into the territory of, um, you know, are we criminalizing uh, an illogical belief system? Okay. What, you know, okay. This is basically a lot of what you just said is that someone in president Trump's position couldn't reasonably have believed that he won the election and that these were, you know, by him saying he didn't believe the data analysis and by believing that he could go into court, that's all basically fraudulent. And it was more, and of course there's details about this that we don't know of, but taking it at face value that an effort to convince Mike Pence that he had the authority under some very, you know, not accepted interpretation of the law or the constitution or procedure, um, isn't there a risk that we're going to start? Couldn't couldn't that lead to the prosecution of somebody uh, who believes the earth is flat or that, um, you know, for that matter, that the planet is only 2000 years old, you know, something well, like that. That's why the, there was this reference to the clear, you know, data analysis that this was legitimately lost. And he just chooses to say, well, I just don't, you know, and, 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 and so, well, that would be a jury question, right? Is that a reasonable belief? Yeah, right. Exactly. It would. I think so. But, you know, when you're talking about conspiracy, conspiracy to, you know, defraud the public, overthrow the government, whatever, conspiracy requires, you know, proving of a mental state, a particular intent or an understanding of what the goal of that conspiracy would be. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it is interesting. I, you know, I'm just saying, is this one of those slippery slope things that, you know, I know that there's a tendency and it's pretty salacious when people say, oh yeah, well, they really got the goods on them now because it's getting into the realm of some pretty serious, uh, allegations. Yeah, that's all true. And it's not a surprise, but, um, the, the interesting legal aspect of this is that, you know, when a lawyer asserts something on behalf of his or her client, there's a whole new set of um, rules that, that come into play. And that, and if you're looking at whether or not you can claim that these communications are privileged because the attorney client privilege applies, then of course it does require an analysis as to whether or not it was in furtherance or aware of an ongoing criminal act. Um, you know, this sounds like a law school question. Do you remember them asking and saying, okay, you're a defense lawyer, and they always have it like it's your first day on the job in your new office that you just opened, something like that, just to make the fact pattern a little yeah. more difficult, right? right and this right. guy comes in, and he's got what in his hand? The smoking gun. And says, I just murdered somebody, and I want you to hold on to the gun, put it in your desk, and hide it. And then you're supposed to debate, like, what do you do? Because it's the conflict between this person comes to you for representation, for help. At the same time, they're asking you to hide evidence. Right. Um, right. And then, right. But, but can you continue representing the person if you turn over that evidence against the client's wishes? You know, you see how complicated all this gets. But um, we should take a break right now because we've got some commercial messages knocking on the door. And we'll be oh, right back. Got to do those. We are back. More legal defense. So, hey John, yeah. before before we go into this next bit here, I just wanted to, 
you may not be aware of this, but our, our friend Kelly Meyer, who is um, the daily news anchor for WHBL, has been for many, many years. He's out, uh, has been out since Thursday because he's having some pretty major surgery performed. And I just want, I wanted you to be aware of that because I know that you know Kelly and uh, just wanted to wish him a quick and speedy recovery. He should be back yeah, next week. Absolutely. absolutely. So, yeah, yeah. So anyway, back to, um, I do want to talk about, we don't, we only have one little segment here left. Do you mind if we talk about that interesting case that just came out earlier this week about the traffic stop that occurred in two different, you know, it involved two different jurisdictions, a cop that clearly either was incredibly mistaken or very dumb. And also a very interesting argument about um, trying to take a blood draw. I mean, I think that's well, all fascinating stuff. I think we can talk about that because okay. I, uh, our very own uh, Stephanie Rock um, uh, was involved in that. Yes. But also we need to talk about uh, Brent Brett Hankinson, the mm-hmm. officer who killed – Brianna Taylor. Oh, who was found not guilty. Was right? acquitted. Yes. Um, and we need to talk about no knock warrants. So Oh yeah. We're not gonna fit all that in, you know, <laughs> we're coming up on the witching hour like in two minutes. So let's let's at least touch on both okay. and see where we go. Well, the hottest news is obviously the acquittal of the um the officer and frankly all i know is that it was a not guilty verdict i don't know any of the details are you follow did you follow it more carefully so i all i know is he was acquitted and um uh his bullets didn't strike anybody so he was acquitted on three counts of wanton endangerment and they deliberated for three hours um and uh he, he testified he testified i did i did hear that that he has taken part in as many as a thousand raids during his police career, but he never fired his gun while on duty until the March 2020 raid during which he fatally shot. Well, another officer fatally shot uh, Ms. Taylor. Um, And uh, obviously that set off a wave of protests around the country. Rightly so. But really, I think what it did mostly was it opened up this conversation about no-knock warrants, right? And and um, and there's a lot of agencies that don't want to do them anymore. Yeah. Now there was an article in the New York Times uh, two weeks ago about this very issue, and talked about it being a nationwide trend where, and I think rightfully so, a lot of agencies are simply not doing them anymore. Um. So we just just to inform our listeners, um, when a warrant is issued by a judge that has probable cause to say, okay, search this particular place, look for these particular things, okay? It's quite often a drug-related thing or whatever, but um, – and, and so when you serve the warrant, you're supposed to knock and announce. Knock. Police, we have a search warrant. Open the door, right? But this this legal theory, this judicially created theory, that we don't have to knock and announce, and we can do a no knock, is due to mostly the war on drugs, 
where if they knock and announce, the, the theory is that they're going to destroy evidence and they're going to arm themselves and be danger to the officers. So if we if we just breach the door and rush in with a SWAT team and with guns blazing, um, then we're going to um, be safer. Well, that's been turned on its head by, well, Brianna Taylor, obviously, but many, many, many other cases that didn't get the notoriety. Right. And, and it's a danger not only to people like Brianna Taylor, where they were at the wrong place, by the way. Right. Um, and, um, and so her boyfriend pointed his gun at the cops because he thought they were intruders. Right. Um, and, and, um, and so, but it's also a danger to the officers. Of course. You know? You know, and all this kind of stems, you, you mentioned the war on drugs, and I think that's, it's perfectly appropriate to point out that a lot of law enforcement practices that uh, exist today stem from, including the no-knock warrant idea, stem from a, a long history of um, police theories about what people who might be in possession of drugs act like. And I, I don't see it as ludicrous nowadays as I did maybe, you know, 15, 20, 25 years ago. But yeah, I remember seeing warrants where like, you know, how the officer will refer to him or herself as the affiant. Your affiant knows from training and experience that people ah. in, in possession of marijuana often have big, dangerous dogs trained to kill police. Oh, they also uh, have weapons. And, and they uh, all have weapons. Very dangerous. Yeah, they're very dangerous, and there might be some Led Zeppelin music playing, you know, which is bad, too. And by the way, if I'm going to stop a car, I, if it's a high, quote, high crime area, which, of course, is black area. Right. Um, any, then um, any, any, Anywhere you want to call a high crime area is a high crime area. Then, uh, yeah, then I get to, you know, like, draw my weapon and search the car and whatever. So, and, and, you know, a lot of this when you really get into the weeds on these issues, it's fascinating because you can see how the trend evolved and it, it had to do with an ever increasing uh, emphasis on, you know, military like responses to simple possession crimes or small time quote unquote dealers of marijuana or small amounts of cocaine or whatever. And, you know, just the existence that this whole vilification which you know the things that are bad that are bad about the drug dealing world are mostly bad because of the fact that it's contraband and we've learned that as it relates to marijuana where you know marijuana crime in states that have legalized that especially for recreational use has plummeted i mean you're taking the it's plummeted it's you're taking the black market out of the equation there are no you have to do is look at portugal that decriminalized all drugs and they have like Almost no overdose deaths. Right. Right. And, and I mean, and there's still drug use. Of course there is. And there's still drug deaths. Of course there are, but, but it's not underground. It's something where, you know, and think about it. We do have, it's incredibly hard for somebody that has either an addiction issue or a loved one who has an addiction issue. This is very important. Think about it. Let's say if someone who is in your family is addicted to heroin and you want to get that person help, would you dare call the police? I mean, or at, who do you call? You know, because of the 
the status of, you know, our so-called amnesty laws don't really ever apply and district attorneys never apply them. And of course it's a serious offense as it, you know, for various reasons we treat it that way, but you know, it stems for everything. What if uh, you've got a concern about your 15 year old kid might be, you know, you find a joint in their pocket. So, Remember on the, Brady, on the Brady Bunch where Mike Brady found cigarettes? And, and, yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. And it turns out they weren't his. And uh, Oh, my God. That is such an old man reference. But I, we're both old men. So. Um, but, <laughs> but really, you don't have to look any farther than Prohibition mm-hmm. to know that um, when you exclude something criminally that is in high demand, as liquor was, that you're going to create this black market. I mean, it's, 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 it's like, it's, you know, and the reason prohibition was repealed was because it was so widely seen as something that, you know, quite frankly, white people wanted. Right. And marijuana and then other drugs were eventually seen as something that, you know, Mexican blacks um, were, you know, fomenting, and this was a good way to suppress them. Right. And that was in the 30s. So uh, it started in the 30s. It started in the 30s, yeah. And and so, um, you know, I, you know, this, the, the hyper-militarization, I mean, we could literally do a whole show on that, mm-hmm. please, um, has been growing since then, and it really got caught fire, you know, starting with, you know, the war on drugs in the 80s, 90s, and especially with um, uh, all this military equipment that the Defense yeah. Department gave to local departments. We saw this in F- Ferguson, mm-hmm. you know, with, with um, you know, uh, arm, d- armored personnel carriers and, you know, like the huge tanks. weapons and tanks. Yeah. I mean, it's ridiculous. Yeah. So I, I know we're out of time, but... yeah. All right, we'll we'll continue next week. We usually do a pretty good job of scratching the surface of an issue, and then time <laughs> runs out. But you know, we'll we'll come back next week and continue the discussion. But uh, wishing Kelly Meyer a quick recovery, and please tune in next week as you can every week right here on thirteen thirty and one hundred one point five WHBL. This has been Legal Defense with Kirk and John. Have a great weekend. Have a great one.